This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. I'm Bill Pollock. Samsung is named 50 schools as state winners in the latest round of a STEM competition. We'll talk about that. Citing the decline of medical schools, one Republican member of the House of Representatives is looking to establish bylaws that make sure medical schools teach about medicine. Some are calling it divisive. And there is a survey being done, an anonymous survey, out to collect data on the state's current broadband status. We'll have that in a moment. Missouri military historian Jeremy Amick joins Ashley Bird to talk about his latest book about Camp Clark in Nevada that served many purposes for more than 100 years. Jefferson Barracks, you know, it, it's been written about ad nauseum. I mean, it, it's been covered. Uh, Fort Leonard Wood's been written about. You know, there's nothing that I can really add to the conversation there on it. And Whiteman Air Force Base, you know, it's kind of the baby of the post, you know, the remaining post here in Missouri. And it's been written about quite a bit. So um, having myself also served at Camp Clark and Camp Crowder, I realized that they had fascinating history that had never been shared, or if it had, it really hadn't been shared in a, in a formalized book type uh, structure. So a few years ago, I um, got permission from the Adjutant General of the Missouri National Guard to go down there and, uh, to Camp Crowder in the Oshel, Missouri, and do some research. And I ended up uh, writing a book from that. And uh, as part of that process, I went and met with a uh, Mort Walker, who was the creator of Beetle Bailey, because uh, he got the um, the insp- largest part of his inspiration for that comic strip came from his own service at Camp Crowder. So that aside, I ended up writing this book about Camp Crowder down in 2019, and it uh, was a major Signal Corps training site in World War II, still remains as a Missouri National Guard training site. Well, fast forward to last year, 2022, you know, we're still kind of under the whole COVID protocols. We're you know, everybody hunkers down and stays away from one another. So uh, kind of gave me a little bit of time to reflect on, well, you know, it'd be neat to do a story on our book on Camp Clark because Camp Clark is also Missouri National Guard training site. And it predates Camp Crowder, predates Fort Leonard Wood, predates Whiteman Air Force Base. It was established in 1908 as the uh, state rifle range. So, uh, again, permission from the adjutant general to go down there and do some research and collect photographs and uh, put the book together. And this book is filled with photographs, and I noticed that you had so many different sources for those photographs. How much work did you have to do to collect all of those? In all these books are are quite an endeavor. Um, I think they were. I think I was allotted a eighteen thousand word count by the publisher, and I was right up to the wall on it. I mean, it was like 17,900 and something. That I, was being, <laughs> I could have gone over, trust me. But uh, uh, so, I mean, it was very verbose, but, you know, you always hear the, uh, the old phrase, a uh, picture is worth a thousand words. And that's certainly true here. I mean, those pictures really paint a story and it was fun to be able to research. And, you know, it's research in each individual photo is a lot of work, especially when you have a book that's uh has about 200 photographs so it's like uh, writing a different story each time you you know you're writing just the the caption for the photo but it was very it was fun in that i I got to meet a lot of different people in the process you know i worked a lot with the missouri national guard headquarters staff i worked with the uh, uh, museum of missouri military history again i went down to camp clark and met with the staff down there i met with some people who had been around Camp Clark all their lives, and they had photos as well. There's a Bushwhacker Museum down in Nevada that uh, shared with me photographs, and 
uh, just being able to to see the photos that are out there and then to put them in a uh, in a in a collected work, uh, I think really helps preserve the story of Camp Clark, which continues to be told, by the way, since it's still being used as a Missouri National Guard training site. Still being told, still being used. We're talking to Jeremy Amick as a Missouri military historian about Camp Clark. That's his book. So to see all of these photographs, it's called Camp Clark. And you can find it on many different outlets. Um, so you talked about it, it being started uh, as a marksmanship training site. It was actually a state rifle range. So let's talk briefly about each of the iterations of the site and, mm-hmm. and uh, some of the significant things that those that, that meant. Well, I mean, the, the layout of the land down there is, you know, it's very flat. It, it drained well. So to really uh, help provide the Missouri National Guard with a uh, combined training location, I mean, uh, prior to this, uh, there's a lot of troops that would, uh, you've probably heard of Swope Park in Kansas City. A lot of Missouri Guard troops trained in Swope Park, um, you know, prior to uh, Camp Clark being established. And, uh, well, I keep saying Camp Clark, but at that time in 1908, it was a state, state rifle range. And this, a lot of this came uh, came to be through, it was called the Dick Act, and it was named, I kind of cover that briefly in the book, it was named for a, a congressman that helped, uh, through his act, he helped uh, modernize the National Guard, you know, to, to prepare them for future, to basically formalize their training, because it, but prior to this, it was kind of, you know, very loose in some locations and it's a good thing that that happened when it did because not too long after well here comes world war one that being said with the uh, the rifle range established um the mexican border campaign unfolded you know when we went down to the border to uh, chase Ponsovia, and of course uh the camp clark became a mobilization site for that and a training site and then the following year in august 1917 the entire National Guard of the United States was um, drafted in the federal service for World War One, and uh, 10,000 Missouri National uh, Guard soldiers uh, trained through Camp Clark in preparation for their uh, potential deployment overseas uh, to France uh, during the war. And, um, you know, again, it was the state rifle range, but sometime uh, a few years after it was developed or established, they started calling it this kind of loosely referring to it as Camp Clark uh, in honor of General Harvey C. Clark, who was a very popular commanding general of the Missouri National Guard. Then when he passed in uh, 1921, I believe it was, uh, they went ahead and uh, formally named the, the it Camp Clark in his honor. It's hosted um, training for the 110th Observation Squadron, which was established in St. Louis. That was the uh, basically the uh, the birth of the Missouri Air National Guard. And um, there's a gentleman you probably heard of who was part of that, uh, Charles Lindbergh. Uh, he trained there at Camp Clark. They you know about brought their old World War II planes down there to train uh, prior to his transatlantic flight. And it just really has a, again a fascinating history. During World War II, it was federalized. It became a site where they interred. Uh, both German and Italian prisoners of war. And in more recent years, it's a lot of money been, has been invested in it, uh, new, newer facilities built. And again, it can, it's a Missouri National Guard training site that's been used for pre-mobilization training as well. So it's still being used. What makes this site perfect for all these different situations? Well, I think like Clark, just basically it was it was away from a lot of uh, heavily populated areas. 
uh, you know, so they wouldn't be uh, a lot of times they were worried, I guess, if they're around popular area, populated areas, you would have a, if you have a rifle practice going on or those types, types of thing, you know, tank training, uh, it, you know, that you might have the residents on the uh, the borders or the fringes uh, uh, complaining about the disruption that may cause. So uh, the land was cheap back when the, these places were established as well. It's a uh, good drainage. Uh, you know, access to a water supply, uh, it's good water, clean water supply, uh, where they could locations they could put, you know, um, sewage for large numbers of, of troops as well. Places that um, for tents, you know, when they have these training exercises and for many years at Camp Clark, they had uh, what they call tank trails, but they don't do that anymore. They go to different locations now for that. But uh, it's hosted, like I said, a lot of interesting, interesting history throughout the years. We're talking to Jeremy Amick about his new book called Camp Clark, a history of a very much used military site in Nevada. As you put together all of these amazing photographs, can you mention one or two that surprised you or just just really taught you something you didn't even know was was there? Yeah, I'm flipping through here. There was one and let me get back to it real quick that I that I've thoroughly enjoyed. And that was the one that I received. It was from the Bushwhacker Museum. And there was a gentleman down there, uh, Captain Arthur Pratt. He was assigned to Camp Clark. Uh, he was in charge of some of the military policemen that guarded the uh, POWs there during the war. And, uh, you know, many of these uh, German POWs would participate in recreational activities such as painting. And the museum down there had a beautiful painting that uh, one of these uh, talented German POWs did of uh, Heidi, Heidi Lamar, who was a Austrian-born American film actress and inventor. And it was neat just seeing that that creative work being preserved there in the museum and then seeing some of the uh, – uh, I was able to access you know, a couple pictures of some of the Italian POWs that were interred there uh, during the war. And um, – well, the connection to Charles Lindbergh, to me, that was just very fascinating. You know, this was all, uh, of course, years prior to the, the Lindbergh baby and uh, any alleged Nazi sympathies that uh, uh, may have existed. But, uh, uh, the, you know, this is when he became a, right before he became a national hero and uh, made his transatlantic flight. So, I mean, Charles Lindbergh's definitely a, a polarizing historic figure, but uh, uh, he's definitely a major historical figure non- nonetheless. So it's just neat that he was he was tied uh, to that camp. And, and then again, a lot of people, I think, uh, from that region have heard of Camp Clark. Uh, they know what camp, they know Camp Clark's there, but nobody really knew who Camp Clark was named for. So being able to share some of the history of General Harvey Clark uh, was very exciting as well. Jeremy, thank you so much for continuing to chronicle all of this military history in Missouri through books and articles and things like that. You truly are a resource, and we appreciate your being with us on Show Me Today, The Voice of Missouri. Hi, it's Tori DeVito. In every family, small conversations can make a big impact, like when my dad shared his experiences as an alcoholic. Your honesty about that part of your life gave me a sense of integrity that I wanted to uphold in my own life. I wanted you to know from someone who's been in recovery more than 30 years now, that hard work is what creates success, not alcohol or other drugs. I said it a lot, and I'm glad you took it to heart. Talk, they hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. 
Matthew. Huh? Oh, sorry. It's okay. I just need you to listen to me. I know that a lot of times, Mom, it might not seem like I'm listening to you, but I am. I hear you. And what you say really does matter to me. I mean, let's be honest. No kid likes rules, but I get why we have them. I hear you, and I know it's because you care. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. All the talks we've had over the years, including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No thanks, I'm good. So thank you, Dad, for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thank you for talking. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. Meet Keith, loving dad, board game champ, bus driving pro. I drive 65,000 miles in my bus each year. If people knew what I know, lives could be saved. Like how there are some things I simply can't see. On my route the other day, a car tried to sneak past me and ends up right in my blind spot. I turned slowly, so I accidentally avoided it. But no car should be in the blind spot for a 40,000-pound bus. It's, it's our roads. roads. It's, it's our safety. safety. Visit www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. Do you worry about how much someone drinks? Do you feel angry or depressed most of the time? Do you feel neglected or unloved? Do you feel that if the drinker loved you, she or he would stop drinking? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. Not everyone trapped by alcohol is an alcoholic. Families and friends are suffering too. Al-Anon and Alateen can help. Call 1-866-200-0223 or visit alanon.org slash help. The United States Deputy Sheriff's Association is a national nonprofit and the largest non-governmental provider of services to law enforcement. The USDSA assists city, county, state, and federal agencies with free safety equipment donations and officer survival training along with cash donations to families of law enforcement officers who perish in the line of duty, college scholarships for the children of law enforcement, a citizen awareness program, and more. For more information on the USDSA and how you can help, visit usdeputy.org. We're back on Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. You know, increasing the broadband effort across all areas uh, does far more than just creating faster Internet speeds. It helps communities with telemedicine, education, increasing business. Missouri Extension Assistant Professor Alan Spell is here with Cameron Connor to talk about a new survey that is out to collect data on the state's current broadband status. Yes, well, there's, there's many benefits. The first being, obviously, the fact that you have fast internet speeds. And what do we mean by fast? Well, 25 megabits uh, upload, 3 megabits download has been kind of the traditional definition of broadband. But really now we're looking at uh, speeds of 100 megabits. So four times that uh, in terms of being able to do a lot of things at one time, whether it's streaming video, uh, uh, sharing files, and so forth. So broadband is important and having access to that is, is the first step. And of course, some of those benefits that come along with, with companies installing the, the, the actual fiber out there and, and broadband do have benefits to our community, but that's really just those short-term benefits while, while they're doing that. Once you get it, the, the real question is, will you actually adopt it? And if you, if you have it running by your house and you're not paying for the service, then you're not really adopting it. And so you're not seeing the benefits uh, as a community. So 
in addition to having it actually there, you want to you want to encourage the adoption of broadband and really the use of those digital technologies. So things you can do with broadband include telemedicine, so you can see doctors that you otherwise would have to travel a long distance to see. You can make uh, available educational resources. You can look for jobs online. You can shop online. So those are things that um, are not available a lot of times uh, without broadband. And when you have a cell phone, some folks use that for some of their activities, but it's really not the great platform for uh, learning or or uh, video calling with a doctor, for example. So you want broadband so you can see some of those benefits. I've studied uh, benefits in several communities in Missouri, done some uh, analysis of economic impacts. And over 10 years, we're seeing annual gains in job employment from one and a half to 2% uh, gains in jobs and similarly along with growth in GDP. And so it actually has real impacts in terms of communities benefiting from extra jobs, extra income, assuming they adopt and use the internet and, and broadband uh, services. MU Extension Professor Alan Spell to discuss the benefits of broadband and also a survey that they have put out to really get the needed data that's going to make instituting or increasing these broadband areas possible overall job growth or things like job growth, income, and GDP, because with this broadband, and to your point about increasing jobs, it really opens up the ability to work from home or give a lot of employees the option to work from home, which in a lot of stances is more convenient. And just because it's more convenient doesn't mean that it's not actually a better, more productive system that a lot of companies are using. So that that's definitely a good way to look at it. And now as we merge into what this survey is trying to accomplish can you explain how the survey will assist these efforts? Yes. This is an historic time of investment in broadband. It's a, it's a time that's comparable to the, the build-out of the highway system in the 50s or, or rural electrification back in the 30s of, of last um, uh, uh, century. The point of, of that is that this is a, a time when a lot of money is going to do this build-out, and so we hope that five in, in 10 years later, everyone has access to broadband. And that's great, but if you only look at the uh, build out of that infrastructure, you're missing the, the broader uh, issues, which include the ability of folks to use that internet service. And so we know that, that skills are important. We know that uh, different populations have different needs. So for example, uh, an elderly person may not be looking for a job, they're retired, but they may be looking to the internet to stay connected with their community or their family versus maybe a younger person that's that's uh, uh, from a rural area or maybe from a lower income household that's really looking for job and trying to find job opportunities so they have a different need. So this survey is really meant to to do a couple of things. One, Find out uh, if you have access to broadband and how good that quality is. And around that, what, what, what is your willingness to pay for broadband? Because, again, building it out there uh, is, is one thing, but you also need to adopt it. So if you can't afford to adopt it, we need to understand that because there's programs that are going to be coming online that will help uh, populations with adoption with devices, for example. So that's part one. But the other one and the other important reason for the survey is to really gain some in insights into what different populations are looking for in terms of what they want to do on, on the Internet and what are some of the skills that they would like to have. So, for example, if you're looking for, uh, to, to, for the ability to work from home, 
Well, you also need to understand probably how to to do video conferencing and how to do other things that um, that we're used to doing from working from home. And so there could be some training that's developed around specifically how do you you know use some of these different tools to work from home uh, versus maybe training that might help a more elderly population that's looking to do different things like just communicate with with uh, their healthcare provider or their community's uh, local government. So this survey will help us answer some of those questions. What's uh, the most um, needed types of services for these different populations? And we are trying to get really good information on some populations that we don't always get good survey results from. So we are targeting uh, lower income households, underserved broadband households, elderly populations, disabled populations, for example, so that we can hopefully get enough responses and really tweak that training uh, and availability of services to those different population needs. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. I'm Cameron Connor. We're here with MU Extension Professor Alan Spell to discuss the benefits of broadband and also a survey that they have put out to really get the needed data that's going to make instituting or increasing these broadband areas possible. So, Alan, for people that are listening to this and they want to go out and they want to do the survey because they want to see maybe an increase in their town or their community, how do they access this? How long does it take? How long is it open for? Can you give me that information? Absolutely. So the survey is a really short survey. It's anonymous, so we're not collecting any personal identifiable information. It's anonymous. Take six minutes. You can access it by going to the to a couple of spots. You can uh, go to the address muextension.us slash Missouri Internet Survey. We also have something called Missouri Broadband Rail. So if you were to just Google that, you would find it as well. And the survey is available for anyone to take. We do ask that you're 18 years or older. But it is a short survey. It does ask questions about your access to Internet, your uh, types of activities that you would like to do. And then it asks information about your background so that way we can understand uh, a little bit more about who you are and, and what your needs are as we look to aggregate this information. So it's Missouri Internet Survey. If you Google that and you look at MU Extension site, or if you go to the Missouri Office of Broadband Development site, you'll also see a, a quick link there as well. What are actually some of the reasons for why broadband is not as strong in some areas? Well, the first reason is simply cost. When you get into more rural areas that are, are more sparsely populated, you know, the Internet service provider is, is in a business, you know, and they're there to, to try to recover their costs. And so they'll look at a place that's really um, not populated highly, and they're weighing the benefit cost of actually putting that uh, internet out there and what they can recoup in some of those fees. So that's part of it. Uh, in, in different places have different costs. You know, if you're if you're trying to build through rock, uh, that's going to be more costly than just uh, soil, for example, or in hilly areas. So that's one thing. But the other thing is that, they, you know, they, they do consider territories that, that uh, different utilities have, and that can play a difference as well. So there's a multitude of reasons out there. And I know that the Missouri Office of Broadband Development, with all of these funding uh, opportunities from the government, are really trying to help alleviate some of those issues. Sometimes it could just be access to an easement, you know, that has 
that have to be available for utilities to get their their um, lines through there. So there's a lot of those different things that are impacting it. And that's why this survey is such a critical step in the right direction. So once again, make sure to go to muext.us slash Missouri Internet Survey. That's the quickest way to get there if you type that into your web browser. Once again, this has been MU Extension Professor Alan Spell from the University of Missouri. Alan, thank you so much for joining us on Show Me Today, The Voice of Missouri. Meet Ed, movie buff, animal lover, safe driver. Five years of driving an ambulance teaches you a thing or two. If people knew what I know, lives could be saved. When I see a car trying to rush past the turning bus, I get concerned. You see, when big vehicles turn right, they have to swing wide to make the turn. And that's a lesson you don't want to learn the hard way. When trucks and buses turn, let's you and I wait. It's It's our roads. It's It's our safety. Visit www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. If you're talking, they will hear you Why are we getting killed like this? Kyle's not here. Got caught drinking beer in the park a couple of nights ago. Really? Yeah. Zero tolerance. He's out for the season. Harsh. Hey, he knew not to drink. We've made that clear to all of our kids, right? Uh, no, not really. Bill, if we don't tell them what we expect and why they shouldn't drink, how are they going to know? Talk. They hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. You try All the talks we've had over the years, including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No thanks, I'm good. So thank you, Dad, for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thank you for talking. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Hi, it's Tori DeVito. In every family, small conversations can make a big impact. Like when my dad shared his experiences as an alcoholic. Your honesty about that part of your life gave me a sense of integrity that I wanted to uphold in my own life. I wanted you to know from someone who's been in recovery more than 30 years now that hard work is what creates success, not alcohol or other drugs. I said it a lot, and I'm glad you took it to heart. Talk. They hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. When it comes to vaping, the truth can get clouded. So let's make it clear. Vaping is not safe for kids, teens, or young adults. It's just not. Because vaping can put microscopic particles into your lungs. And dangerous things like metals and volatile organic compounds into your body. And nicotine, the same highly addictive substance found in regular cigarettes. Nicotine can harm a person's brain development through their mid-20s. Affecting learning, memory, attention, and impulse control. And priming the brain for other addictions. Vaping products also come in kid-friendly flavors that can make them appealing to youth. And many kids also use other drugs, like marijuana, in vaping devices. With appealing flavors, high nicotine levels, and lots of promotion on social media. Many kids think vaping is harmless, but it's not. So talk to your kids about the risks of vaping, because when you talk, they hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Email from school about the incident today. Scary. Tell me about it. Did you have any idea that was going on? None. I mean, you saw Derek at the game last night, too. Did you have a clue? 
No, but you know, teachers like me, parents, we don't always know as much as you guys do. Kids hear first about what's going on with other kids. Half the time, it's rumors. It can be hard to tell sometimes, but if you have a concern about a friend who's having trouble with alcohol, prescription drugs, bullying, violence, anything, you need to tell an adult. Mom or me, a teacher, coach, school counselor, someone you know and trust. Dad, no kid is gonna tell an adult about that kind of stuff. I get it, but if we don't know, we can't help. Speaking up about a problem, that's what helping a friend is all about. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. on Show Me Today. Citing the decline of medical schools, one Republican member of the House of Representatives is looking to establish bylaws to make sure medical schools teach about medicine. Some on the other side of the aisle have labeled it divisive. Representative Ben Baker tells Anthony Morbeth about the Do Not Harm Act. It uh, essentially prohibits uh, requiring diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, curriculum or teaching in institutions of higher learning that are medical institutions. Um, and then, of course, has a penalty. And there's there's some other things that are included in that legislation. But essentially, that's what it's getting at. Um, and I think there are many reasons why this is a, a discussion we're having um, and why I think we need to uh, to really um investigate what, what's happening with diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, look at some evidence to see what it is producing uh, in the long run. I do have many concerns, especially in the medical community right now, with uh, what is happening with, with some of that teaching. It's called the Do No Harm Act. Uh, my understanding, proposing to make sure medical schools teach medicine, not necessarily something that can be perceived as discriminatory? I think the, the, the principle here is the fact that there are some institutions that are tossing out merit when it comes to um, becoming a doctor, lowering standards in some situations as well. And I think that is very concerning. You know, I and not only that, but it, uh, replacing needed time and curriculum uh, that doctors need to know when it comes to uh, administering quality health care with diversity, equity, inclusion curriculum. And I think that's also problematic. And so what you see is I think the, the end result of that, if this plays out in the direction that it is heading, is you have people that will, uh, rather than passing the rigor of what it has always, we've always looked at as a a high standard to meet to become a doctor um, with checking the boxes of some of the indoctrination uh, that is happening with diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, you know, being respectful to people uh, of all walks of life, all races, all ethnic backgrounds, I think is something that doctors have always done. Um, but I think this has in, in some ways been hijacked by um activists groups and and other indoctrination that is in, in my opinion from my research in this subject uh, causing further discrimination and I think that is also a concern I would have to assume that there has been or that there will be some sort of potential feedback have you seen any so far and and, and if so what does that look like 
So there's, it's been an interesting thing to see play out. I have had both sides. I've had students that are in the medical programs right now, third and fourth year medical students. I've had professors at some of the medical schools uh, that have sent me information who are saying we have to deal with this. We have to address this because of what it is producing and what people are uh, now expected to, to be, to really be compelled to believe in, in some of this. And then have repercussions if they don't align with that. Um, and I think that's, uh, you know, at the very base level, a breach of the of First Amendment rights. Uh, of course, I've had opposition from a lot of the medical institutions of learning, from uh, colleges, from uh, some of the medical students as well. And then, you know, you, you look at some of the opposition. It's, it's kind of a, a wide variety of, of reasons, I think, that people are uh, in opposition. Uh, some are concerned about accreditation and saying that if the accrediting bodies are requiring DEI and if you change that, then they won't be accredited and they'll lose their accreditation or they will be put on probation. There's a lot of different views on that uh, when it comes to accreditation. Um, that's a concern that I've heard. And then there's the, the very ideology of it. And I think that that goes to the fact that uh, people have very different understandings as to the definition of DEI. Uh, some really think that it that it helps uh, greater diversity and, and inclusion, and I think that there are many instances and and um, evidence that shows that it's causing further discrimination, um, and 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 also causing the the potential outcome of having people that probably shouldn't be a doctor or shouldn't be qualified to be a doctor, um, but we're able to get through that program anyway because of the way that the system is now set up. So I think it's uh, it's something that we're having some very uh, interesting debates and, and uh, discussions about. And if you're just tuning in, we're talking with Republican Representative Ben Baker of Neosho. He joins us here on Show Me Today talking about his proposed piece of legislation, which looks to establish the Do No Harm Act. Now, uh, at the time of this recording, we are discussing and talking about this in the hallowed halls of the Missouri Capitol. Asking this question I'm going to ask is going to result in several different types of responses. And I'm going to ask this because of the discussion we're having. It's, I guess, what you'd call a loaded question. <laughs> Is this so-called diversity, equity, and inclusion, and I believe what you called an anti-racism in another interview discriminatory in and of itself? I think in some instances it is. I think that's the problem. It's kind of it, it in, in the 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 research that I have done and the uh, the accounts of this and, and again, still gathering information on this subject. But I think you have seen situations where in admissions it is uh, discriminatory, um, where uh, heavier weight is put upon uh, certain ethnic backgrounds or race or color um, or or ideology um, and others suffer from that and it isn't then about merit or uh, academics and I think that is a concern um, and then there are others where I think they they just have a different understanding of what uh, and definition of what diversity equity inclusion really entails um, but I think it's something that be, because of the the rise of this and the um, uh, 
you know where where it has really in the past few years become a lot more prominent um, it bears a, a scrutiny it bears discussion and I think people need to be honest about that discussion and really look at the outcomes of this when it comes to health care and that's what really what I'm getting to is I think that there's the potential here uh, for less quality health care and that is a concern I think would be to anyone uh, for me I had back surgery when I was at uh, 38 years old and it didn't matter to me the the the, the ethnic background the color of the surgeon or um, any other factor other than I wanted that to be the best surgeon possible uh, that would be operating on my spine, which is uh, a very delicate situation uh, and could, you know, result in harm if that person was not very qualified. Uh, and I think anyone who has ever had um, serious health care administered to them would understand that they want the best doctor possible, uh, not one that checks all the boxes for some of the uh, criteria that is that is crept in with diversity, equity, and inclusion. Final question as we bring this discussion to a close, and it's sort of a two-part uh, question, and part one is uh, the fiscal note. How much is this going to cost? And then uh, part two of that is, let's say we have our crystal ball here, and let's say this passes and is signed by the governor. Uh, how does this get enacted? Sure. So on the fiscal note, uh, with many fiscal notes that we see uh, put together, in the legislature, um, it's very vague. And in this fiscal note, I think it's looking at the the worst possible if, if all the things went wrong and all the institutions, uh, you know, lost uh, their accreditation or whatever it might be, it could end up being, I think, the, the fiscal note is like zero to two, two, two and a half billion dollars or something like that, which is, uh, in my opinion, just ludicrous. But uh, the fact is, with accreditation, um, we as a state and sta uh, taxpayer-funded universities, we, we have the purview to say what should and should not be taught in these medical institutions of learning. Um, now, I know there are third-party accreditation boards and uh, groups that, that are involved in that, uh, but I don't think they should be able to... to to trump what is happening on the state uh, statute or state level when it comes to legislation. It's called House Bill 489. You can keep up with that at house.mo.gov. And uh, that's Republican Representative Ben Baker joining us on Show Me Today. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Hi, Grandma. Can Nina come over for dinner? Sure. I've been meaning to ask you, what would happen if someone offered you a drink? Grandma... If anyone ever does, I want you to say, no, I have too much respect for my family and I don't want to get in trouble. I promise, Grandma. They really do hear you. For tips on what to say, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. That's underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. This message brought to you by SAMHSA and this station. Meet Ed, movie buff, animal lover, safe driver. Five years of driving an ambulance teaches you a thing or two. If people knew what I know, lives could be saved. When I see a car trying to rush past a turning bus, I get concerned. You see, when big vehicles turn right, they have to swing wide to make the turn. And that's a lesson you don't want to learn the hard way. When trucks and buses turn, let's you and I wait. It's, it's our roads. It's, it's our safety. safety. Visit www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. 
Women hear a lot about self-care these days. Advice on ways to relax, exercise, eat healthy, and more. Those are all great. But one of the most important self-care steps we can take is making sure we're financially secure later in life. That means saving money for retirement. It's never too late to start. And it's the kind of self-care that brings peace of mind that lasts. For small steps you can take to save for retirement, visit WeSaySaveIt.org. That's WeSaySaveIt.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Ashiro's work is never done. You care for the house, the kids, and our future. We're so grateful for all you do. Now it's time to care for yourself and save a little more for retirement. A free three-minute online chat can give you the personalized tips you need to boost your retirement savings now. Visit aceyourretirement.org today. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Do you worry about how much someone drinks? Do you feel angry or depressed most of the time? Do you feel neglected or unloved? Do you feel that if the drinker loved you, she or he would stop drinking? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. Not everyone trapped by alcohol is an alcoholic. Families and friends are suffering too. Al-Anon and Alateen can help. Call 1-866-200-0223 or visit alanon.org slash help. The United States Deputy Sheriff's Association is a national nonprofit and the largest non-governmental provider of services to law enforcement. The USDSA assists city, county, state, and federal agencies with free safety equipment donations and officer survival training along with cash donations to families of law enforcement officers who perish in the line of duty, college scholarships for the children of law enforcement, a citizen awareness program, and more. For more information on the USDSA and how you can help, visit usdeputy.org. Final segment here on Show Me Today. Samsung has named 50 schools as state winners in its latest round of a STEM competition in Missouri. Carthage Junior High School was selected as the Missouri winner. Elisa Nelson talks to Renee Brownfield with Carthage Junior High about the winning project her students put together. Our students are developing ideas related to collecting water from the environment, whether it be dew or stormwater filtering it and using it for irrigation. And we're also doing some research about how to gather some renewable energy options from that. Where in the world did they like come to this uh, particular project? Like how did that all come about? Well, our STEM STEM club was created um, to increase the nutrition and health of um, our school and our community. So we've been exploring growing food, growing opportunities, um, experimenting and engineering our own solutions um, for growing healthy food. And in that, there's always a lot of water um, needed for those things. Most recently, we have a uh, micro orchard planted um, just outside of our out of our classroom, and they've hauled a lot of water. And so they're learning the value of um, conserving that water targeting it, targeting it, and um, how much water it takes to um, grow healthy food and keep us healthy. So how many kids do you have a part of this project? I have, I don't know the numbers right now, but it's well over 120 kids. Um, We have 120 students, um, and then we have um, several kids that stop in on a volunteer, volunteer basis almost weekly. 
Oh my gosh, that's incredible. You must be so proud. I'm so proud and so exhausted. <laughs> Their energy fuels my day. <laughs> well, this is exciting that they're looking for ways to make this place a better place. Um, and so, okay, so how long have they been working on this project? So from the very developmental stage, we've just... Um, We've had a couple of days here where we've talked about it and thought about it um, in between our units, but we've been working on the solid for the last three to four and a half weeks. Oh, really? Okay. Wow. That's amazing that these little minds are just full of these ideas within such a little amount of time. That's fantastic. Um, I'm so encouraged by by having these minds in my classroom. It's, it's an honor to get to watch them work like this. We have Renee Brownfield, a science teacher and STEM club sponsor at Carthage Junior High School joining Show Me Today. Samsung has named 50 schools as state winners in its latest round of a STEM competition that's called Samsung Solve for Tomorrow. And um, so congratulations to your group of kids, a large group of kids, about 120 plus kids Um who have been involved in this project. So what's next then, Renee? Where do you go now? So we are in the prototype development phase. Um, They are remaking their initial prototypes, and then we're going straight into some materials investigations. We need to reach out to some people in our community um, who possibly might be help us to assemble uh, a next prototype or a next version, and we're going to be doing some project research to see what our solution has to what kind of marketing opportunity our solution has. With these different phases, uh, how long do you project that taking? We're going to build at least one more prototype before spring break, so we'll have one more prototype built next week. We have spring break, and then at least... A quarter of the students will probably build one more time while the rest of us develop and do other marketing research and enhance um, other parts of our project. So then you have to have this all up and running for nationals then? So the Samsung is amazing about recognizing the, the STEM engineering design process. And so I feel that they have blessed us with this award because of the kids' engineering success, not necessarily the success of their engineering. We don't have to have a working prototype to move on to the next round, um, but it's highly likely that they might have that. Recognizing the engineering of success, not the success of engineering. That's such a great way of putting it. I'm curious, Renee, has your school ever competed in this competition before, or is this the first time? Yes, I have entered for the last several years. Um, In 2017, we were also state finalists. That group of students was engineering an aquaponics system through recycled materials. And now some of them are mentoring the students that I have in my classroom now. 
Oh, man. So you've got just these little learning machines going. That's fantastic that the I mean, the excitement continues um, from 2017 and on and even before then, obviously. So so do you um, do you plan to like make your project into something that, you know, can be used so that it'll help Missouri? Because obviously we have drought problems. Exactly. Well, it is my ultimate hope that the the product that the students engineer actually works here in our micro orchard so that they can come and work on it next year when they're eighth graders and see it and be able to fix any problems with it and to train the next seventh graders about about what they've learned in the engineering design process, hopefully to teach them how important peer-to-peer instruction is and just communicating their learning process. Anything else that you think our Missouri audience should know about when it comes to um, this competition and your kids and so on and so forth? Um, Well, the community of Carthage um, this year is concentrating on water conservation. Our Chamber of Commerce is sponsoring an Earth Day celebration, and so that's directly tied into where some of these kids are going to showcase their product projects. But water is not not something we should take for granted. As many of them noticed in the in the last summer, the extreme lack of water caused a lot of problems and, and we just never know when the next flood will be. Missouri is notorious for not enough or way too much. You got that right. Renee yeah. Brownfield uh, with Carthage Junior High School joining Show Me Today. I'm Elisa Nelson. So Samsung Solve for Tomorrow will culminate in three schools being selected in May as national winners who will receive $100,000 in prize packages comprised of Samsung technology and classroom supplies. And did you have a prize package as part of being the state winner? We we have already. Um, once we turn in our submission for the next round, we have won $12,000. Whoa. So what do, you, uh, what do you do with that? Are you using that towards the project or to build something else? Tell us about what you're doing with that. I'm seeking the interactions of my other science teachers. I, I would love to see it infiltrate all of the classrooms uh, in our science hallway so that we can um, spread this technology and this learning style to more actively give students something that they can do, not just something that they can read, and see how that the scientific principles that they're learning can apply to the world around them. Renee, why is STEM important? Because it's the way we live our lives. Renee Brownfield, science teacher and STEM club sponsor for 13 years at Carthage Junior High School. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Show me today.